the sacrifices in Leviticus. So I think this is about page 95, where it says the sacrifices in Leviticus, Leviticus 1 to 7. Yes? Well, I, it, says, it seems to say 95 in my book. Is that where you make it? Good. 96. Some might be 95, 99. But anyway, it says at the top of the top, the sacrifices in Leviticus. Why are, all the, why are there all these rules about sacrifice? Uh, well, one or two of you asked that, and they're posting, and there's part of an answer. Uh, because worship easily goes wrong um, and assimilates to the culture. Um, you might compare it with various aspects uh, of what we, what we do in church. Um, we have some very... Um, we put in a huge amount of effort in, in order to get the music absolutely right. Bands practice for ages. Uh, we put in a huge amount of effort to get the overheads right and stuff like that. Now, we have different things that it's very important for us to get right. Uh, it would be nice to think that our concern about getting the music right were concerned um, about its, um, the content um, of the words that we sing uh, being true, edifying, theologically correct, scriptural, and things like that. Which um, maybe or maybe not is the thing that is especially focused on. But we, we, we in our culture have our ways of giving a lot of attention. If you're a high church um, Episcopalian or Roman Catholic, you may put in lots of, time, of energy and time into, make, into what is sometimes referred to as the choreography of the service. Um, getting, getting the procession absolutely right. Um, and that the, all of these things, the kind of concerns that would be in Leviticus and the, the concerns that we've got, might sometimes be aesthetic, uh, but they um, certainly relate to questions about the way in which worship goes wrong, and in particular the way it assimilates to the culture. Uh, and that would certainly be Israel's problem, uh, or Israel's potential, well, yeah, Israel's actual problem. Uh, that in, in lots of ways, what people did in worship in Israel was similar to what Canaanites did in worship, and therefore it's important to make sure there were the, the important differences. And likewise, our worship um, is assimilated to the culture um, in the, the way in which we sing and so on. So it would be important for us to make sure that the uh, way in which we use the same forms as the culture does um, preserves um, and affirms the important things that are different about the gospel. Various kinds of offerings then. Uh, first, the whole offering, uh, which is referred to by means of those two Hebrew words, olah and kalil. Um, the, word from, the word olah comes from uh, the, a verb that means to go up, uh, because the nature of a whole offering is that, is that the whole of it goes up in smoke. You burn all of it. It all goes up to God. Um, and that's expressed in a different way by that other uh, word that's used to describe the whole offering, a kalil, uh, which comes from the Hebrew word for all. Uh, so again, it suggests that, that, that all of it goes to God. That's what makes it a whole offering. Um, there, it, it isn't the case that it's shared uh, by uh, Israelites with God, as, the, as is the case with some other offering offerings. You are giving all of this stuff to God. It's something that you do each morning and evening. Um, in, at, as, as dawn breaks uh, and as twilight comes in the evening, uh, then you offer up something, then they offered up something to God uh, in, in, the, uh, in the sanctuary, in the temple, um, as a way of uh, offering themselves to God at the beginning of the day and seeking God's blessing uh, on the day to come, and then offering themselves to God at the end of the day uh, and thanking God for what the day had been. 
the essence of the thing is the giving up something holy to God. The second kind of offering, the grain offering, isn't an offering that uh, comes on its own, uh, but is something that accompanies other offerings. Well, I mean, you need um, a, a bun as well as your hamburger, don't you? I mean, it's no good just eating meat. You need bread as well. Um, and so the, the nature of, of these sacrifices is to be something like a barbecue. shows how enlightened the Israelites were, or how enlightened you are. Uh, and uh, naturally, you, you need something of a, of a carbohydrate, of a bread kind, to go with the meat. Though here, this is something that can be shared by uh, the offerer uh, and God. And that's, uh, that sharing is characteristic of the third kind of offering, which I've referred to first here by the NRSV's title, a sacrifice of well-being. Uh, and then there is the NIV's title, the fellowship offering. The, um, in the Hebrew expression there, I've put zevach shalamim. Zevach is the ordinary word for sacrifice. Uh, and you can see a similarity between the word shalamim and the word shalom, uh, which um, suggests well-being. The, 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 the word shalom uh, suggests the, a well-being in, in, in all aspects of life, hence the NRSV translation. But shalom, peace, uh, also suggests good relationships between people. Uh, and so the NIV's phrase, fellowship offering, uh, gives you another, uh, another take on the possible significance uh, of this sacrifice. And the fact that the sacrifice is shared uh, by God and the offerer, uh, if anything, I think, makes me think that the NIV more likely gets it right. There are three um, different significances that can attach to this kind of offering. You might come and offer a Zevach Shalamim. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't do that on a regular basis. The whole offering... The whole offerings Israel gives each morning and evening. It's a set thing. Uh, the sacrifice of, of well-being or the, sacri- the fellowship offering is something you do when there's particular reason to do so. Uh, and here are three reasons uh, you, that, that, that Leviticus gives. You may come and give an offering like this when God has done something terrific for you and you want to give thanks to God for that. Um, a kind of subset of that, in a way, is when it's a votive offering, that is... Uh, you prayed and you said to God, um, if, you, uh, if, if you answer my prayer, then I'll come and bring you this thank offering. And God answers your prayer. So now you come back and, and, and you say, y- you answered my prayer. I promised you I'd bring this offering and now I am bringing the offering. Or thirdly, you may simply want to give God an offering. Not because God has done something in particular for you, uh, but this is the origin of the expression free will offering. You probably know the expression free will offering. You didn't know that this is where it comes from. Um, that is, you, you simply want to give God something as an expression um, of, uh, of your love for God. Now, whichever of these three reasons for bringing the sacrifice applies, um, the distinctive nature of the fellowship offering is that the offerer and God share in the offering. So the, um, the whole offering uh, characteristically is just you giving yourself to God. Uh, the fellowship offering is God and you sharing something. Now, uh, it's after those three kinds of sacrifice, whole offering, grain offering, uh, fellowship offering, that Leviticus uh, comes only in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 to what are traditionally uh, described as the sin offering and the guilt offering. 
And the very fact, the very fact that Leviticus talks about those um, offerings that express uh, worship to God, as the whole offering does, and offerings that express fellowship and gratitude to God, as the fellowship offering does, shows, uh, illustrates the point that um, I try to make in that paper, that the uh, essence of sacrifice is not to do with sorting out sin. Uh, because sacrifice provided the New Testament guys with an understanding um, of how Christ's death sorted out sin, and because the New Testament puts a lot of emphasis on that, um, and because then Christians look at what the Old Testament has got to say through the New Testament uh, prism or lens, uh, we come to assume that the essence of that sacrifice uh, is to do with sin, and it ain't so. Uh, the uh, the very order of the sacrifices here points you in that direction. Um, the the two forms of sacrifice that uh, are referred to in chapters uh, four and five um, are traditionally referred to uh, as the sin offering and the guilt offering. Uh, the commentators nowadays uh, are inclined to reckon that something like purification and reparation uh, offering would uh, express it better. Uh, the, the sin offering isn't concerned with sin with the kind of connotation that that, that word has for us. When we, think about, when we think of sin, we think of ourselves um, as deliberately doing something that's wrong in relation to God, or for that matter, to another human being. Uh, and part of the essence of um, the nature of sin, when we think in those terms, is our d deliberately doing something wrong. Uh, the idea that you sin accidentally is a hard one for us to put out, get our minds around, as one or two people um, indicated in their postings. Because by definition, sin is, is when you deliberately do something wrong. That whole framework doesn't really work with regard to the so-called sin offering, and that's why purification offering would be a better phrase. Um, the uh, problem that underlies, that lies behind the purification offering, isn't you deliberately doing wrong, something wrong in relation to God, uh, or for that matter, in relation to uh, somebody else. Uh, uh, it's, it's to do with some stain or some impurity or some taboo having, co having come upon you. Uh, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that taboo having come upon you. Um, over the past week or so, by virtue, well, particularly at the end of last week, I would have been impure by virtue of the fact that I was scattering my wife's ashes because I've been in contact with, with something dead. And when you've been in contact with something dead, you can't then rush into God's presence, um, the, the Torah says to you. And the reason you can't do that is because there is a radical um, discontinuity, contradiction, between who God is as the living God and anything dead. You can't bring, to, to bring death and God into contact with each other is to kind of compromise who God is. So um, it's, it's, it's right that you should, if somebody in your household dies, then you're going to be involved in burying them. Uh, it's not, you, you, and by virtue of your doing that, you're not committing a sin. It would be a committing a sin not to do that. But nevertheless, you do become taboo, you do, do become stained, you do become unclean, you do become impure. You can't rush straight into God's presence then, because that compromises the, the, the importance, the theological importance of the fact that God is the God of life. 
Uh, and so before you go into God's presence, there needs to be a cleansing rite. Or, or maybe simply time needs to elapse with various of these um, cleanness, uncleanness um, issues. That then sometimes simply time needs to elapse for that taboo to kind of dissipate. Or sometimes you'll go through a cleansing rite with, with water. Um, or sometimes you'll offer a sacrifice. One way or another, these are ways of recognizing the, the disjunction between God as the God of life and death as the thing that you've been in contact with in order to preserve an awareness of the distinctive nature of God um, as the God of life. Now that actually um, is the background to lots of the matters to do with cleanness and uncleanness in the law, uh, not least um, with some of the ones that seem to us, can seem to us troublesome, uh, like uh, questions about menstruation um, and why uh, a woman is unclean after birth, twice as long if it's a baby girl than in, than in relation to a baby boy. Um, that's to do with, for instance, with the fact that there is something, um, well, there's something uncanny about menstruation. It's both a sign of life and a sign of death. Um, it's a sign of life because if you're menstruating, you can, uh, uh, you can conceive. And yet blood is itself a sign of death, and losing, uh, losing blood is a sign of death. So menstruation is something very mysterious. Um, and, uh, and so that's the reason why um, you, a, a, menstrual, a, a menstrual woman uh, doesn't, as it were, rush straight into the presence of God because there's something about her current experience uh, which, which sets up those questions about the relationship uh, between life and death and between God and death. Not that there's anything wrong with her, not that she can't pray, not that God doesn't like her or anything like that, uh, but in order to make sure that you keep being aware of God being the God of life. Uh, there are some uh, rules and um, observances that go along with that. Uh, same is true about um, the uh, about so-called leprosy, which one or two people uh, asked about in their postings. Uh, that uh, when when the Old Testament, when the translations talk about leprosy, they aren't talking about what we normally think of as leprosy in the sense of a disease which eats away at your limbs. They're talking about something more like psoriasis, about uh, skin diseases. Uh, which is the way quite often now modern translations um, render the word in Old Testament and New Testament rather than in terms of leprosy, which is misleading. Um, and uh, what they are reckoning is that when you've got certain kinds of skin diseases, it's as if your body is kind of falling apart, as if the boundary between the inside and the outside is collapsing. Um, when we get into the story about um, Miriam uh, getting, num getting leprosy temporarily, uh, when Aaron prays for her, uh, he says, um, to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us for a sin that we have, been, we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like one stillborn whose flesh is half consumed when it comes out of its mother's womb. Um, Miriam's getting the, the disease that she gets makes her look like somebody who's becoming a corpse. Um, and, and so the reason why you, uh, you can't go into the presence of God in that state um, is, is, again, the, the, the clash between the deathliness about you and the liveliness that there is about God. Um, and, and the reason why, a leper, why lepers, people with skin disease, 
are, are sometimes put, the references in the New Testament to their being isolated and, and, and in the Old Testament too, in the Torah too, um, is because if somebody else comes in contact with them, then they, then the taboo that attaches to the person who's got the disease attaches to the person who's been in contact with them, just as if a person is in contact with a dead body, then the, then the taboo attaching to the dead body comes to attach to the person who's been in contact with it. Uh, and, and so uh, somebody with that, who's, who's got that disease uh, owes it to their brothers and sisters um, not to, um, to make it possible for them to avoid getting that contagion if they want to be able to go and take part in worship or get caught by the same um, taboo that the person who's got the uh, illness has, um, has experienced. So um, the, the sin offering, or better, the purification offering, is one of the, one of the things that's involved uh, in order to um, uh, put the situation, uh, to correct the situation, uh, when you have been in contact with some, with, for instance, particularly with death. Uh, you can also get affected by a taboo or a stain uh, like that with regard to um, some uh, moral acts. The uh, Leviticus refers to... Um, uh, a situation such as one when you could have said something in a uh, dispute that was being sorted out in the community, you'd got some evidence that was relevant, and you didn't provide your testimony. It's a bit of a puzzling example, because that sounds rather like a sin. That is, you, you didn't do the thing you should have done. But maybe it's presupposing that you didn't know that the case was on or something. So that, again, the, the concern here is not with... the cons- uh, it's, it's very often... The definition of sin is not necessarily something that, was, that involves deliberate action on your part. Uh, you can be affected by um, this kind of pollution, stain, taboo, uh, whether or not you intended to do something wrong. The fact that you didn't intend to be in contact with a dead body doesn't alter the fact that you did get in contact with a dead body. Tough, then the, that stain attaches to you. Uh, okay, you didn't know that this... That this um, uh, conflict was being sorted out in the village court um, and, and therefore you didn't go and offer your testimony but nevertheless that, that thing still happened um, and so there's, so there's still something that um, has affected you which you uh, need to sort out the, the so-called sin offering then or the, the purification offering uh, is there in order to deal with that kind of thing happening and in order to, to um, preserve that awareness, for instance, of God being the God of life or the God of truth or whatever, um, and the offering that you make um, helps uh, to, to affirm that uh, and thereby to uh, take away from the effect uh, of, of that taboo that that taboo has had upon you. And then the other, the other offering that, that's, that's about, that, that, that sounds to us as if it's about sin, is the one that's traditionally referred to as the guilt offering. Uh, the King James Bible actually did rather better than the translations in between, because the King, the King James Bible talked about it as a trespass offering. Um, that is, you've trespassed, you, you've, um, you've invaded somebody's space. Uh, you've pinched things out of their bit of the fridge. Um, you've done something that has taken something away from them. You've infringed upon uh, them in some way. Um, and, and so the, the, the guilt offering or reparation offering is a means whereby you make compensation for something wrong that's been done. Uh, you, you need to make an offering, you need to make compensation in relation to them, but the compensation that you need to offer them 
is accompanied by um, an offering to God because a sin against another, a wrong th- uh, something wrong done to another human being is also a wrong done to God. It's an interesting example. It's a good example, this one, of how uh, a f- the, f- the focus on dealing with wrongs in relation to other people in the community uh, lies uh, on compensation rather than fines or um, imprisonment or something of that kind. We're in a terrible um, situation, I mean, in this state, but in other states, no doubt, too, with regard to the number of people that we incarcerate. There's no incarceration in Israel. I noticed when I was on the metro last night that if I didn't pay my, if I hadn't got a ticket, which I had because I'm an old man, it only cost me 25 cents, so, I mean, you know, I could afford that, couldn't I, really? Um, I could be fined $250, and I would have to do 40 or 48 or something hours community service. Now, the introduction of that kind of um, uh, consequence of doing wrong, that's, that's, that's a step forward. Well, a step backward in that we're getting more like the Israelites, um, that you should do something to make up for, for wrong that you've done, um, is the, the, the assumption that uh, underlies the Old Testament laws, is that when you wrong somebody, it, it's, it's, you need to make compensation to the person and to God your offense is against the person and against God. It's not an offense against the state. Um, and there's a much more promising way thus, of thinking about uh, wrongs and uh, reparation and so on in the way these laws work than there is in the way in which our laws traditionally worked. Um, anyone who ask anything about that, about the sacri- sacrifices? Or maybe will I... No, don't do that. What will I... Let's think. How am I going to organize this? Um, yes, let me see if there's other things in the, the postings about sacrifice that I ought to try and say something about. Um, oh, somebody said, what about this expiation? Uh, to ask me to comment on the, the, the debate about expiation and propitiation in Romans um, uh, in, in connection with this. The... I don't think that it makes a whole lot of difference in the end uh, whether you talk about expiation or propitiation um, in Romans or elsewhere because the, the issue is, uh, is Christ expiating sin or propitiating God? Well, in a sense, it doesn't make much difference because if God, Christ is expiating sin in order for you to be in relationship with God, so... so the, the effect of propitiation is also implicit in the notion of expiation. So I, I think, in, not least in light of the way those Old Testament um, sacrifices work, uh, if Paul is, is thinking in terms of the Torah, it's more likely that he's thinking in terms of expiating a sin than of propitiating God. Um, uh, but, but, but still, the effect of Christ's work is to put things right between us and God, and in that sense, it's still... Uh, it, it still is propitiation. Though it's worth then, it, it's nevertheless wor- uh, 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 worth noting a difference in the way that Paul is thinking, when, particularly when Paul talks about wrath and so on. I mentioned at the beginning of the quarter that there's no reference to wrath in Leviticus. Sacrifice is not, in, in Leviticus' thinking, the, the point about sacrifices is not because God is angry and by you offering the sacrifice, God stops being angry. Leviticus never talks about God being angry because the the concern about those purification sacrifices and so on 
is with the objective um, uh, taboo stain impurity that's come upon you. Um, and uh, maybe a better way to think about it is to think in terms of um, the mother dealing with the baby when the baby's dirtied itself. Now, when the baby's dirtied itself, that, that, makes, that does make the mother say, Bleh. well, this used to make this father say, Bleh. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're angry with the baby. It does mean that you need to deal with the, th- with, with the problem. Get the smell out, get the stuff out of here. Um, but, but that also illustrates how, as it were, then the mother is on the baby's side. The baby, God doesn't send the baby away to go and clean itself up, and then you can come and be in relationship with, with me. It's the, the mother and the, ba- the, the mother uh, seeks to deal with, the, with that issue for the baby so that, so that the mother can be happy to be in the baby's presence rather than having to hold her nose. Uh, and um, it's something like that. There's the presupposition uh, of the sacrifices, the sacrificial system. Remember that it's God who gives the sacrificial system. Um, it got, this is a way in which, uh, with regard to the purification in particular, God provides Israel with a way of uh, solving the problem that's caused by, if you do, for instance, get into contact with death. Um, and that links, that, that links with, the, as somebody put it in their posting, um, is God able to be around sin? Um, well, is the, is the mother able to be around the baby when it's dirty? Well, answer yes or no. Yes and no. She do, I mean, she doesn't really want, she wants, to, she, she couldn't stand sitting with that baby all day with it in that mess. Um, uh, and, and, and so, but, and so, but she doesn't thereby just push the baby away. What she does is, is sort out the mess, which is what God uh, is doing for us in Christ. I like this question. Would God, does God have the choice not to forgive? Would God still be God if you were not to forgive? And, and I, I, think that, I, I think that links, I think uh, I can set up a link between that and what I think is that, that, uh, that great Brueggemann story about when the son comes home late and, um, and, the, and the question is, which, which do you say last and loudest? I'm so glad you're home or where have you been? Um, now, uh, and then with that very uh, telling uh, remark about what we do is we make God the person who says uh, where have you been and Jesus uh, be the one who says I'm so glad you're home um, uh, we divide up the Trinity in doing that um, but the whole of God is saying uh, both and the whole of Jesus is saying both uh, I'm so glad you're home and where have you been what have you been doing is, um, God, God is involved both in loving and in rebuking and God is deciding from moment to moment which of those to do. Um, and um, so, so God sometimes forgives and God sometimes doesn't forgive. So God sends people to hell. That's not very compassionate. Um, God, God, with us, God will sometimes decide this is a moment when some action needs to be taken um, in relation to us. Um, somebody, in a sense, put me, uh, sort of told me off for the way I talked about the notion of punishment. 
that I said that the idea of punishment really belongs in the context of law rather than of worship. And, and this person rightly said that punishment belongs in the context of covenant. And now when I talked about punishment belonging in the context of law, or what I need to do is to nuance, is to point out how there are two contexts in which we talk about punishment. We talk about punishment in a legal context, but we also do talk about punishment in a family context. Um, on Saturday, my grandson got sent to bed without dinner. <laughs> without, without, with jo- well, he had got a banana, so it wasn't too bad, uh, because he'd been being troublesome. Not sent to bed, my mother, of course. Um, she, was, she was punishing him, but she was punishing him in the context of, fa- of the way a family uh, works. Um, that's different from a different framework of thinking uh, it, from the uh, punishment that works in the context um, of, uh, of law. Uh, and the, the way that God punishes us is in the context of uh, a family, covenant, of covenantal relationship, not in the context of law. Um, as far as I understand the history, but maybe that Jim can, can help me some more with this, um, somebody commented on, I'd mentioned to, I, I mentioned, I think, Irenaeus, um, uh, and uh, Irenaeus getting it right. Uh, in the history of theology, the notion, looking at um, atonement and sacrifice and, uh, and so on, um, in terms of law, of, of law, in terms of law, punishment and law, came in um, in about the year 1000 with uh, Anselm. Um, in the context, because in, and in that context, uh, that, that happened because that was a way in which the um, atonement could be expressed in a way that made sense in the cultural context. Um, the problem is it then kind of gained a life of its own so that we, we read the New Testament through Anselm as well, and then read the Old Testament through the New Testament um, and so read the, whole, read the whole of scriptures in that legal kind of way. Um, but in the first millennium, they didn't read it that way. Uh, it, it was as a result of developments in the medieval period uh, that atonement came to be understood in that more legal sort of way. Uh, and, and one of the, the first things asked me, Jim, was there anybody else in the first millennium who, who, who expounded atonement in that le- less legal way? Do you know? Um, actually, I think you see a couple of the ideas of legal analogies in Irenaeus, although I, I think you're correct in saying it's not the dominant. Yeah, oh, sure, yeah. Oh, you, you find one. Paul sometimes talks that way. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's there, it's there, yeah. John Chrysostom has a, uh, a really interesting bit in his commentaries on... Chrysostom means golden mouth, by the way, which is obviously a very good name, golden mouth, golden gay. Right. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> Oh, really? That's interesting. Where, do you know where that is? Can you remember where that is? I can find it for you. That'd be, that'd be fun. Send us, put it on the, on the website, on, the, uh, on Moodle, will you? Because it'd be, it'd be nice for us to know that. Thank you. Um, so w- one of the things that indicates is, I mean, some, somebody again sharply asked whether just thinking in these relational terms, that was just, okay, that suited us as postmodern people. And in a sense, we are doing the same thing as the medievals were doing. It suited them to think in legal terms. It suits us to think in relational terms. Um, Though I am trying to argue that the relational terms, on the one hand, that we have not noticed the relational way in which the Old Testament talks about God and us. We've turned that into something legal when it isn't. Um, 
uh, and uh, and thus that um, uh, it's often the case that that when you it's an example of how when you read scripture out of, out of a cultural context, there are some things that you will then see more clearly. There are some things you may miss, uh, and um, it's terrible to be postmodern. Uh, but maybe it helps us to see some things that were there in Scripture that in a modern context people weren't able to see quite as clearly. There are, of course, ways in which a postmodern context totally perverts and twists other aspects of the way in which, ways in which we th see things. And so we need to see things through other people's spectacles um, as well as seeing through our, through our own. See, see, look at Scripture itself through other people's spectacles as well as through our own um, so that we won't only see the things that confirm what we are inclined to see. Um, I'll leave that for now, and uh, but if I if uh, maybe I'll get a chance to um, come back to it. Uh, but let me go on to over the page to page nine, maybe ninety seven, where it says interpreting Leviticus. Is that the right number? Interpreting Leviticus ninety seven. Right. Okay. Um, so, here's the, the background to that question about how we interpret those rules about cleanness and uncleanness and so on. Why are there all those rules? Uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, emphasize the system of the holy against the common and the clean over against the taboo. Um, there's nothing wrong with being common. I mean, God and the things that belong to God are holy, sacred, special, set apart. Um, the Sabbath, for instance, is holy. Uh, the other six days are common. Uh, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. Not, that, again, holy, it's not holy over, over against sinful. It's holy, against every day, holy over against every day. So that's one set of distinctions that, that Leviticus and Deuteronomy will make. The other set of distinctions is the one I've been talking about, of the clean over against the taboo, um, which, again, isn't a moral distinction, but more a, a kind of metaphysical one. The job of a priest, according to Leviticus 10.10, is to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, what I'm referring to as the clean and the taboo, and to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that Yahweh has spoken to them through Moses. Um, um, and uh, to that end, the previous verse says, just be careful how much you drink, because um, your, your job is to be able to guide people. You as priests need to, have, have got to give people the right kind of guidance. So stay sober in order to be able to help people with this. English translations uh, have the word unclean, uh, where I've got the word taboo, which sounds logical over against clean. Uh, but the, the Hebrew words don't work like that. In other words, the, the word that's translated unclean is a, is a positive word. Um, the, the idea of, and I've, um, th thus I'm using the word taboo, because the idea of something taboo is that it's something mysterious and or something worrying and or something uh, off limits. Um, so what, um, what's going on in this distinction between clean and taboo? Well, here are some approaches to it. One is the moral approach. Uh, Ellen Frankel, in her wonderful book, The Five Books of Miriam, The Five Books of Miriam, as opposed to Moses, what the girls would say if they got the chance to say, say it. Um, the rabbi's answer, 
Many of the Torah's laws about the treatment of, an, of animals are ethical object lessons for us. So we're not to consume blood so that, we may, so that we learn to sanctify life. We're not to eat certain animals that scavenge or kill for food so that we shun such behavior. We're not to tear food from living animals so that we avoid, in, to avoid inflicting unnecessary pain. We're not to eat from food that hasn't been tithed or shared with the needy, so that we acknowledge the true source of our sustenance and act justly. The Torah's laws about the treatment of animals um, are ethical object lessons for us. Uh, the trouble is that it can work the opposite way. As Jesus points out in uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, that observing those rules can actually lead you into unethical behavior. Um, it can be a way, for instance, of avoiding supporting your parents. Um, because you're focusing, uh, you're, you're making the law work your way. Um, second sort of understanding, um, the, the sacrifices and the purity system uh, were abolished in the New Testament. Uh, but the, those laws about sacrifice and purity don't thereby come to be, uh, cease to be part of the inspired scripture that is designed, according to, to, to Timothy, to take us on to maturity in Christ. How does it do that? It does that by providing theological categories and symbols by means of which to understand Christ and the church. So the sacrificial system and the purity system become types or shadows or sketches or parables of the death of Christ and of Christian worship and mission. Now, it's important to see that that's, uh, as usual, that's the New Testament working, looking at the Old Testament and using it to answer its questions. It's not, to as far as one can tell from the Old Testament, that the purity system or the sacrificial system were deliberately set up in order to provide a foreshadowing of Christ. And what would be the point? Nobody saw it anyway. You couldn't, you couldn't, you, it wasn't something that, that people could have understood. It's only when you are looking back from the New Testament at, uh, and asking yourself, how can we understand what Christ is about? Uh, that, for instance, the sacrificial system can help you to do that. It's a typological understanding. There's a medical understanding. Uh, some of the creatures that count as taboo or unclean or polluting are particular characters of disease, notably the pig, uh, but also some of the sea creatures. Uh, but if that's the key to understanding the laws, uh, these laws about cleanness and uncleanness, it's peculiar that the New Testament abandons the purity laws. You wouldn't have thought it wanted us to abandon something that was good for us medically. Um, more plausible are what I've called the, the, are the last two of these categories, of, as I put them here. There's a missiological understanding. Uh, one of the purposes of the purity system, the taboo system, having clean and unclean animals and so on, uh, was to keep Israel distinctive. I am Yahweh your God, sanctify yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming creature that moves on the earth. For I am Yahweh your God, I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Uh, the, the system kept Israel, Israelites distinctive. It still does that. If you're a proper observant Jew, then the kind of rules that you need to keep are something that, set, that keeps you distinctive from Gentiles. And that was partly to ensure that Israel didn't, didn't come to behave like other peoples in ways that were religiously or morally reprehensible. 
Uh, for instance, you weren't to mix cotton and wool. Uh, that symbolized the need to keep separate um, things or people that are different. The instructions themselves emphasize the importance of making distinctions, of keeping, th keeping things separate. Why? Well, Leviticus 20 makes a link between making distinctions between clean and polluting creatures and Israel's distinctiveness as a people over against other peoples. The implication is that, these, that God intended these rules to give expression to Israel's, Israel's vocation to be separate from other peoples. It was partly to encourage Israel to stay distinct from other peoples in ways that didn't matter religiously or morally because God's missiological purpose required Israel to be a separate people. And paradoxically, it's then for this reason that the system is abolished in the New Testament. For instance, in Acts 10, where Peter has the, um, uh, the sail full of seafood um, lowered to him and is told to eat, and he knows he can't do that as a Jew. God says, I've just made it clean, guy. Because, because now, that's to make it possible to reach out to the Gentiles. So paradoxically, the Puritan system exists for, for, for the furtherance of God's missional purpose by keeping Israel distinct, distinctive, and then it's abandoned for the same reason, because God's going to be uh, reaching the world uh, in this different way after Christ from the way that God was using Israel before Christ. It's sometimes been suggested that Israel was to avoid practices associated with other religions, that, that, but that wouldn't explain many of the practices. The question that all that makes me think about is this. It used to be the case that Christians dressed differently. They didn't go to pubs, and they didn't go to cinemas and things like that. Nowadays, you can't tell a Christian from a non-Christian uh, in the way in which they dress and the things that they do. Um, we've, we've gained something, but we've also lost something through that. And then there's the interesting fact that unbelievers sometimes respond very positively to people in religious garb, in, to nuns, uh, people like that, uh, monks. There's something that speaks to people, uh, to unbelievers, about such people. Uh, and, and I think there's a link between that and this um, God's using the distinctive appearance, the distinctive practices of Israel um, in the Old Testament. In missional church contexts, people talk a lot about practices. Uh, and some of those practices are uh, kind of significant in their own right. Hospitality, for instance, is a practice. Um, but, but there are other sorts of practices in Israel which were significant not because they were morally, um, partic uh, not because of their positive moral connotations, because, but because they simply pointed to something dis different, distinctive. Um, other, other, other than the everyday. So we gained and we lost uh, when the Puritan system was abolished. Final um, way of looking at the Puritan system is the one I've called here anthropologically, which is the, uh, the, the of which the, the separation from death that I was talking about is an example. As there is nothing sinful about being common or everyday rather than holy, so there's nothing sinful about being mysterious and or worrying and or off limits. In other words, about being taboo rather than clean. There's nothing wrong with being... That's why the, the word unclean is kind of misleading. Unclean obviously sounds like a bad thing. Taboo doesn't so much maybe sound like a bad thing. The point is that things that are taboo cannot be brought into association with God. 
So to deal with being taboo, you may need to go through a cleansing rite and or to bring an offering or just to allow a specified time to pass. Only then can you go to the sanctuary. There may be several related symbolisms involved in the taboo system and different versions of this may underlie different prohibitions that appear in the Torah. So the purity system first can be a sign of the distance of Yahweh from death. Yahweh is the living God. Maybe the system is aware of a contrast over against Canaanite gods who could die or who were closely involved with death. So corpses are taboo and a person who's in contact with a corpse can't immediately come into the sanctuary. And then there's the difference between life and death. Maybe also the system helped people to cope with an odd experience that we also have, which is that death and life are in theory total opposites, and yet they easily get confused. Hence our debates over abortion and about life support systems. It's difficult to be sure when life starts and when life ends. People may look dead, but actually still be alive. That odd thing about menstruation is that it involves blood, so it looks like a sign of death, but it's actually a sign that a woman could conceive new life. So there's something mysterious and worrying and off-limits about it. Well, to a guy, anyway. Um, I, 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 well, I don't know what a, No, I'm not going to ask that question. I imagine it doesn't feel that way to a woman. Uh, the repeated law about not cooking a baby goat in its mother's milk suggests the same symbolism. The means of life, the mother's milk, is becoming the means of death. So life and death are being mixed up. Uh, the skin disease in Leviticus 11 makes it look as if a person is falling apart. They look as if their bodies are dying, so they're taboo. There's a related taboo about the emission of semen. Uh, you have to have a bath. You can't, again, rush straight into the sanctuary. Um, semen is designed to be a means of new life, but it simply gets wasted. And then um, there's the distance between Yahweh and sex. The fact that sex carries a taboo links with that. The Old Testament reckons that there's nothing wrong with sex between the right people, but it does reckon that we have to dissociate sex from God. And that's important in a context where the gods were also involved in sex. And that's pretty important in our context where sex is God for Christians as much as for anybody else. So again, a person who's just had sex can't come, into the can't come straight into the sanctuary. And then there's the proper structuring of life in the world. The distinction between clean creatures and taboo creatures may relate to the concern about death, but it also reflects and upholds the order of creation itself. That list of creatures in Leviticus chapter 11 keeps talking about um, things according to their kind and whatnot, and uses the same language as Genesis 1 um, uses. The forbidden creatures, the ones you're not allowed to eat, are the creatures that don't fit into regular categories. Animals that chew the cud and split the hoof. Fish that have both scales and fins. Uh, Mary Douglas is the person who um, particularly expanded this way of looking at the distinction between animals. Uh, and that distinction between... Um, uh, that's a ban on mixing things uh, that are by their nature separate, like wool and linen, um, uh, is parallel to that. There's a way in which there are structures in the world which uh, it's important to preserve, not least because we need structures in, in the world uh, and uh, for our own kind of well-being and for our own sense of well-being. Uh, and so a lot of the distinctions that get made 
uh, in the animals that you can eat and the animals you can't eat, that kind of thing, um, are ways of affirming that there is structure and order in the world. Anyone want to say anything about any of that? Okay, homosexuality. Oh, this is a funny evening, isn't it? Next page. Let it not be said that um, controversial topics are not being raised. On the next page, 99, it says interpreting Leviticus, etc., number two. Uh, and there's something that was floating around the internet a while ago, which I believe was originally a response to uh, a statement by uh, a radio personality. Uh, I wonder whether you can help me with the interpretation of some of the Old Testament laws. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, I remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it to be an abomination. I know God's word is eternal and unchanging, but I need some advice from you about some other laws. I'd like to sell my daughter into slavery. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Um, I know that I'm allowed no contact with a woman once she's in her period of menstrual uncleanness. The problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offence. <laughs> Leviticus 25 states that I may buy slaves from the nations that are around us. A friend of mine claims this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify? Uh, well, at the end of that box, how could you, would you argue that the prohibition on homosexual acts applies now, but the others don't? Note that that Leviticus reference and Leviticus 20.13 are the only Old Testament references to homosexuality. They fit with the other Old Testament prohibitions on combining things that don't belong or fit together. Um, if you're not sure whether your clothing mixes linen and wool, you can go to, to the Sha'atnez service of Seattle and they'll check your clothes for you. It argues that this is a way of fitting in with the way God created the world rather than trying to improve it. Note that the Old Testament doesn't see the wickedness of Sodom as lying in the realm of sex, but of violence. Genesis 19 speaks of the cry of the oppressed. Uh, and Ezekiel 16 likewise talks about Sodom as, uh, in terms of violence. The problem in Genesis 19 is rape, as is in Judges, as in Judges 19. So Genesis 19 is irrelevant to a discussion of homosexuality, or at least of same-sex relationships in the form that anybody today would want to defend them. Uh, it's been uh, reckoned by some um, gay people that David and Jonathan had a gay relationship and that Ruth and Naomi did, but there's no indication of that in the Old Testament. Uh, the key references in, uh, in the New Testament, uh, in Romans uh, and 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy are there. Their significance is disputed, though I think the way that Paul talks um, in Romans and Corinthians sounds as if he is picking up the language of Leviticus and thereby is assuming um, that the ban in Leviticus applies still um, in a Christian context. You probably can't sort out the question about homosexuality, though, on the basis purely of exegesis like that. Um, you need a broader biblical theological view of, for instance, cleanness and taboo and food and sexuality. If you're to argue that the ban on homosexual acts applies now, when those other bans uh, that came in that box don't apply. If sex was designed for expression within a monogamous, lifelong heterosexual relationship in order to fill the world and to image God in the world, then that does suggest 
that homosexual practice falls short of God's vision. Uh, in the same way as polygamy does and prostitution does and divorce and remarriage and masturbation and living together before or without marriage and the deliberate avoidance of conception do. In other words, there are a, a, a number of ways of uh, falling short of God's vision for sexual relationships uh, of which homosexual practice is one. Um, and though my problem then is why we currently, uh, at least in um, um, evangelical Christian circles, um, make a lot less fuss about divorce and remarriage than we did about 50 years ago, and a lot more fuss about same-sex um, relationships than we did 50 years ago. Um, and I can't see myself that there's much moral difference between those. So that doesn't make me want to say same-sex relationships are fine. It doesn't make me ask the question why uh, we don't, why we have, why we now take such an easier attitude to divorce and remarriage, for instance, um, and uh, a question, probably a questioning attitude to polygamy, um, that why we've got these different attitudes to these different practices, when I think theologically they have a similar status. The Bible contains six admonishments to homosexuals and 362 admonishments to heterosexuals. <laughs> that doesn't mean that God doesn't love heterosexuals, it's just they need more supervision. <laughs> um, would you like to talk to each other for two or three minutes about that? Or anything else, really? Talk to each other about what you make of all that. I'm sorry? Well, uh, you'll still be heated in debate if you have 90 minutes. Um, I want to pick out just uh, a few issues out of the um, postings that, that uh, the, the ones that either a lot of you talked about or that I thought were um, particularly interesting. I need to, uh, one, one, about Hammurabi, um, there were a number of people raised questions about the relationship between that the historical relationship between Hammurabi and Exodus, um, it does actually say at the top of the uh, Hammurabi pages that um, the date of Hammurabi is the 19th century BC. So it's miles before Moses' day. On any, however early you date Moses, you can never date Moses early enough to be before Hammurabi. If you see what I mean. Um, uh, so there's no doubt that if the, if there were any dependence um, between Hammurabi and Moses, uh, Hammurabi and Exodus. It must be Exodus is dependent on Hammurabi, not the other way around. Um, there, uh, did I say that right? It must be Exodus is dependent on not the other way around, yeah. Um, there, there are a number of other examples. We've got another, another, a number of other examples of law codes of this kind, uh, which you can find, for instance, in a book in the library called um, Ancient Near Eastern Texts. Um, but uh, and the very fact that there are other similar sorts of documents uh, it indicates that we probably don't need to think about, um, in the narrow sense, Moses or Yahweh or somebody has read Hammurabi. Um, it, it's, it's rather that there is a, a common way of thinking about issues in cultures um, in the Middle East. Um, and, uh, and, and what Exodus does is take uh, examples of familiar ways of thinking about issues um, and make them part of the covenant.
Theologically, then, what you've got going on uh, is, well, first, the assumption that, that people, in other, people in cultures know something about right and wrong and work out um, some ways of dealing with issues which are not totally wrong, which are kind of reasonable. Um, and uh, th th that's part, if you, it, to use the technical terms, of God's general revelation. Uh, what, God th what God then does is give a special revelation to Israel which uh, has an effect of tweaking uh, the, the kind of things that without that special revelation uh, you would say, um, uh, tweaking them in new directions. Uh, someone asked, commented on whether other peoples had a concern about widows and orphans and so on. Yes, they did. But I think it's the case that you don't find other um, peoples having the kind of concern about the alien, the immigrant, uh, that Exodus has. And it's, and it's significant then that Exodus bases a concern for immigrants on the, on the immigrant experience of the people themselves. Um, you are aliens in the land of Egypt. You know the, the heart, the experience of an alien, and therefore you, you, you ought to be concerned about the aliens, the immigrants in your midst. Uh, you can see there how the specialness of what God did with Israel, the act of redemption and the act of revelation, are affecting, are tweaking um, the content um, of the rules which in other respects are very like um, uh, the, the rules of other peoples. Yep. Um, uh, the, the, um, we'll come back to that. Can I, right, yeah, we, yeah, I'll, I'll, I want to, I need, I want to talk about slavery, but it's, uh, it needs longer treatment and I will come back to that. Um, uh, second interesting question several people raised was, uh, several people picked up my comment about something like, along the lines of uh, the New Testament did its best to abolish sacrifice and priesthood um, and failed. Um, and um, you can see that. The, the, the position of the, of the senior pastor is unbiblical. Um, uh, that the, uh, the position of a, of a priest, and I am one, is unbiblical. Uh, <laughs> uh, in the sense that the New Testament did, did its best to, it, it, it went back, when, when Israel arrives at Sinai, God says, um, you are uh, a kingdom of priests to me. Then five minutes later, you've got the Levites just being the priests. Excuse me, what's going on here? Um, and uh, so, so you've got, you've got a, a, a continual interaction between God's ideal, um, God's way of doing things, and the way that we would like to do things. Um, and one of the ways to, to pick up Brueggemann's phrase in which God makes himself vulnerable to us, uh, God meets us where, where, where we are. We want to do sacrifice? Okay, let's have sacrifice. We can't do without priests? Okay, let them be priests. Uh, we can't do without kings? Okay, let them be kings. We can't do without senior pastors? Okay, let them be senior pastors. Um, uh, and, uh, but, but then what's very important is for us to recognize that in having institutions like that, we are demonstrating our inability to live with God's revelation. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and it's important that we see how theologically inappropriate are the things that we do so that at least we can safeguard against the worst of the disadvantages of the systems that we insist 
um, on living with and that God says okay about. How can we make worship um, uh, more concrete in the way that sacrifice was? Uh, that, was a, that was a neat question. Um, it reminded me of, um, in, in Anne's memorial service here in Pasadena, in our church, we used the most fantastic amount of incense. Uh, we don't have incense very often, but we had a huge amount of incense. Um, incense is a kind of, it isn't explained in, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, uh, it's, um, it's an image for prayer going up to God. Uh, and so the idea that this burning of incense and these clouds going are suggesting the way in which our thanksgivings and our prayers are going up for God, that makes the process of prayer and thanksgiving more concrete than when it's merely um, what we're feeling or what we're singing or what we're saying. Sometimes when people are ha trying to help, uh, when churches, congregations, services are trying to help people deal with the notion of passing on their sins to God, they get, they've got people to write things down and then burn the piece of paper upon which, the, uh, upon which you've written down your confession of your sin. And thereby it's kind of gone. Um, uh, anybody got other examples of ways of making worship concrete like that? Dance. Yeah, as long as we all dance. It's, biblical for, it's not biblical to have one girl at the front in a frothy dress kind of doing this. But it's but it's um, it's it is biblical for us all to dance. Yes, that's right. Then your then your body is involved in worship. Yeah. Explain the idea of atonement. <laughs> I've got one minute. In one minute, explain the idea of atonement. Okay. <laughs> The notion of God, God paid the price for our sins. Uh, God is doing that through, uh, through, Israel's, through Israel's experience, through Israel's story, through Israel's history. All the time, uh, uh, here is God doing things like bringing the people out of Egypt and giving them their land and so on giving them the crops, giving them things to eat, and all that. And all the time, Israel is inclined then to kick God in the teeth, to go and worship other gods, uh, and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and when, when Israel does that, um, God, if one can put it this way, m might well be tempted to cast Israel off. I think, the Israel, I think the Old Testament doesn't quite use those terms, but almost those terms. God could cast Israel off. Uh, and that makes Israel pay the price for its sin. But instead, what God, what God does is God pays the price for Israel's sin. In the sense that if somebody does wrong to you, if you do wrong to them back, then you're making them pay the price. If you absorb, if you let them do that and you don't respond, if you turn the other cheek, um, then you're paying the price for their sin. You're, you're making the sacrifice that makes it possible for that relationship to continue. So through the, through the Old Testament, God is paying the price for Israel's sin. God is making the sacrifice uh, that makes it possible for God and Israel to carry on being in relationship, despite the sinfulness of these people. Um, and, and that is a process that continues 
um, that comes to its climax um, in, in the cross. God pays the price of becoming a human being. God makes the sacrifice of becoming a human being. God, God puts apart God's glory in order to become a human being. And again, we kick him in the teeth. This time we put him on the cross. Um, so so God, God makes the sacrifice um, uh, of um, letting humanity, Gentile and Jewish, um, do, it, do its worst to him. And no matter what we do, it won't stop making the sacrifice. Won't stop paying the price. Insists on doing so. And when we've done the last and the most worst thing that we possibly could do, and we've killed God, God won't stay dead. God rises from the dead. Um, and, uh, and then says, now will you trust in me? Now will you turn to me? Now will you live, live your life for me? That, it seems to me, is that's, that's, that's atonement. 